Today's episode is sponsored by my Lit Daily Online Yoga Classes. This is an exclusive pass into my personal practice and program that I created from experience as a physical therapist and 20 years developing my Lit Yoga methodology. There is a different class with me every day, including special monthly live streams, so you can feel your most lit up anytime and anywhere. Get a three-day free trial today by going to movementbylara.com and clicking daily classes. Let's get moving. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a Movement by Lara podcast which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns, so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today's podcast is Wednesday Q&A, and it happens to be New Year's Day. Happy New Year! It's a new year, a new decade, 2020. Holy moly, this is a big deal. 2020 has such great sensation behind it. Like a lot of great things are going to happen this year and this decade, I believe. And I hope you believe it too. I hope we can all show up in our best way. And I'm going to start with this Q&A that you guys have given me and picking some questions that I hope are relevant today and going into this new year. So the first question I have is from... Jaja Yoga, what would you do if a student doesn't want to do a one-legged balance posture because the ankles hurt? Well, I would go into a little more detail and ask, you know, where it hurts, what movement hurts them, if they have some kind of pre-consisting condition that makes their ankles hurt. Ankles are hurting because there's, if there was a specific injury, then of course that would be something that would contribute. But in addition to that, probably because there's lack of uh, good proximal stability up the chain, so to speak. So at the hip, most likely, if you don't have a lot of stability in the hip, all these muscles that surround the hip joint that attach to the pelvis, so many of them, if they are not adequately strong, then the the stability is 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 attempted somewhere down the chain at the ankle. The ankle needs to have some stability, but it needs to have mobility. So we need to have mobility and stability at the hip so that we can have good ankle and mobility and stability. So if, if a person is complaining about that, you can tell them to just pick up one foot a little bit so they don't have all the weight on one leg. So instead of if they were bouncing on their right foot, instead of fully um, lifting the left foot off the floor, just lift the left heel and start to put more weight on it. And then I would have you um, encourage them to put their hand on their gluteus medius, gluteus maximus, and really pull it in toward midline to get some activation there so that they are not trying to do the work down in the muscles around the ankle, which are much smaller and are not going to, and that's possibly why their ankle is hurting. I would also tease out what does hurt mean? Does it mean it's getting tired? Is it achy? Is it sharp pain? Those are all different types of hurt. And so if it's getting just like really wickedly worked and it's kind of burning because it's working so much, that's going to reveal a lot. That's going to reveal that up the chain, the stability is not there. So all of those things I would work on, um, Jaja Yoga. Franny Rosen wrote me, how to set boundaries without guilt? Well, this is a new year, a new decade. So these type of questions, this is a great question for that. 
how to set boundaries without guilt. Well, I, I think guilt is comes about for real reasons. I'm saying in general. What? Why do we have guilt? There's real reasons we have guilt. You know, um, you were driving in the car and you accidentally, uh, you know, you weren't paying enough attention and you ran over a squirrel. I mean, that's a you know. I'm just thinking of that example. And then there's like a lot of guilt. Oh my gosh, I wasn't paying attention and look what happened. I, I ran over an animal. Now this might not have, this might have occurred anyway if you were paying attention, but you add on this dimension of you weren't really paying attention. You were looking down, looking at the um, radio, whatever. You were otherwise occupied. So there's guilt. That's a real, that's a real feeling of guilt. Then there's a lot of guilt that is kind of this, that is projected on us. You know, whether it's like the background we grew up in and, you know, I mean, we can think of all the kind of Catholic guilt. Of course, there's Jewish guilt. I say that there's a religious guilt type thing that can be placed upon you that we can laugh about, but that is real. And that is, you know, you do something that is not in line with your faith and you should have guilt about it. And you could insert anything in the replacement of faith. It could be the way you you were um, raised and and you're doing something different, and there's guilt involved. Then there's the guilt that people place upon us because of their expectations of us, and the, some of those might not even be realistic or very kind. You know, so if you're if you're feeling guilt about you're not seeing a relative enough, or you're not calling enough, or you're not showing up enough, or doing enough, maybe some of that is real, and maybe some of it is projected on you. So guilt is a very is a feeling. You can it is a verb. You can be guilted into feeling like guilt. Um, but it, I would really encourage you to figure out like what is causing guilt. Is it your own stuff or is it somebody's own, it's their stuff being projected on you? So setting the boundaries for for not having guilt is really being clear, clear in who you are and who you aspire to be. So if you aspire to be, you know, a really good daughter, sister, friend, partner teacher, worker, whatever it is, this kind of identity you have, this role you have. Well, what does that mean for you in that role that you're playing? We all play multiple roles. At its best, who are you hoping to be? And and what does that look like? And I find the guilt will kind of come in when you we are doing a lot of things and maybe one of our identities, one of our personas, one of the people, one of our roles in life, is, is not matching up to our ideal version of that. And that is normal, P.S., because we are, you know, we're just, we have a lot on our plate, I think, as humans and as women, as men too, there's a lot expected of us. And so I think the question, I'm not, no, if, I'm not sure if I'm answering it, but I think your question is really coming from a place of you're, you must be feeling guilty because of something that you're not providing for someone or um, for some things, set of people. And I would say, get really clear, and, and this is how you'll set those boundaries. And they won't feel like boundaries. They're just going to feel more like these are your boundaries, not boundaries, but these are your delineations of, of what you expect from somebody and what you expect from yourself. First, turn it on yourself. Like, what? who do you want to be in, in all these different roles? So, and I think the guilt comes in in the times that, like I said, we're not necessarily 
doing our best in all of our roles and like creeps up in the middle of the night and wakes you up and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not showing up as as a team player, as a mother, as a sister, as a as a partner. And that's when we can feel that guilt. Now, if you're feeling it because somebody's projecting on you, then you need to decide if what they're what they're saying it has any truth to it. You can't change a person's opinion about what they are feeling. That is that is that is a that's a feeling they're having. And what you can only change is how you receive it. So I would say is be really clear on who you want to be and and follow that path. And if somebody's giving you a hard time and giving you some guilt about it, then be willing to have the conversation with this person about what you're seeing in in that in that dynamic. There's a lot lot more to say about this, but I hope that helps you, Franny. The the big thing is to be clear on what what you want for yourself and how you're going to go out and be that person in with all the different layers of of it. Guilt is not a good thing, so please don't walk around with it. <laughs> okay, next question. Not as heavy as the guilt stuff. Is it necessary? This is by Anna Poosh. Uh, is it necessary to twist after a backbend before a forward fold to neutralize the spine? This is a, a, a move that is often used in the yoga world. It used to be thought of that you would do, uh, the way I was taught, you did a pose and then you did a counter pose. So in other words, if you did a backbend, you would do a forward bend as a counter pose. Intuitively to me, that always felt weird. Like the life is not about that kind of extreme balance, you know, like you do this and then you have to do the exact opposite of that. And I think in today's modern postural yoga, many people don't have that particular point of view, but they're still kind of curious. Well, if we don't do a forward fold after a backbend, what is a good thing to do to kind of get the spine back to neutral feeling? If you've gone into this big extension, is that really loading the spine? And if so, what would we need to do to make it feel better? I think it's normal to do or normal and natural, and it feels nice, nurturing for the spine to do a, a twist after a backbend. And new, but you're not neutralizing the spine per se. What you what you do anytime you turn the spine like that, especially with an extended spine. So don't rotate around a rounded spine. Uh, Some people will do a twist, but they aren't really fully lengthening the spine and that isn't going to have the same effect. But if you've extended your spine in a nice backbendy way, doing a, a twist is great because turning and rotating the vertebra, the segments of the vertebra, turns and rotates and does a little kind of a little washer action on your disc. The discs are very sturdy. They're very, very sturdy. And that movement from a rotation and then coming back again provides this almost this rehydration for the disc. So it's it's not that you're getting it back to neutral. It's just very nourishing to do that. I don't think you have to th- overthink, okay, back extension. Now I got to do a twist and now I can do a forward fold. Here's what I would rather you think, or Anna, I would rather you focus on can you keep your spine in a neutral position? Neutral is maintaining the natural curves there. And when all parts move, they move in a segmental way that contribute to a motion. So 
going all going into extension is contributing to a backbending motion. And you want to do that with some equality in all of the different segments. So the thoracic spine is extending in, in the same manner as the cervical spine. We know the cervical spine has much more extensive ability in it, but that doesn't mean you should use that as your backbend source. So I'm more interested in, I think you should, you could ultimately be able to do a backbend if you've warmed up all the way, and then you should be able to move in a variety of ways and you, and it won't feel wonky because what you're not doing is compressing. Backbending traditionally in yoga, especially these extreme backbending, you're talking wheel, kapatasana, the ones where you're really going for gusto there, they, um, to, to achieve that move, there's a bigger range of extension in, in, into hyperextension in some of the realms, specifically the lumbar spine and the cervical spine. And so coming out of those feels really odd. And that's maybe why some people feel like they have to neutralize the spine. Ultimately, I feel like if you, if you really practice well, not going into the extreme ranges of motion, you're not going to have to really neutralize the spine because you're keeping it neutral the whole time. I don't know if that totally confused you or not, but think of it this way. Think of the spine. You have discs between it. You have space between the two vertebra above and below. And there are areas of the spine that go away from midline, and that's called kyphosis, which is thoracic and, and sacrum. And then you have areas of the spine that are going in more towards the midline of the body, and that is lordosis, which is in the cervical and lumbar spine. All of those curvatures already balance out. So you don't really have to rebalance or neutralize the spine. If you move into extension, try and move in a way that all of those parts are extending equally, that one is not doing more of the work because then it will feel weird. It will feel like you'll have to neutralize it. I hope that makes sense to you. But yeah, I think this just begs the question of how we can be more critical thinking in our yoga poses and then extend that to any other movement practice. Where are there some imbalances? I can tell you, I'm working with athletes, there's tons of imbalances in all kinds of movement practices. So where can we bring more balance? I think is the big the big question there. So Julie Miller, speaking of um, athletes, writes me about yoga poses for high-level kayak paddlers, paddling 12 to 20 kilometers per day, five to six days per week. Well, Julie, I'm not a kayaker. Did it, so what I would say is examine what you're doing a lot of. and in the kayak, I know you need to have good flexibility because you're you're moving from the torso a lot, getting into the scapula and the shoulders. So you need a strong core, but you also need mobility in your rib cage. And I would say, you, since you're sitting, you definitely need to balance out those poses, uh, or you need to balance out that position with other poses. You need some lateral movement because you're really sitting in one movement, even though you're twisting. You need to get into some side lunges and things like that maybe side hopping, skater hops and things, all of that nature. Um, you probably need just to get some of that fascia free. So you don't necessarily need like high amped yoga, but you need some really balanced yoga. So I would go and look for some great kind of mobility for the shoulder, for the hips in particular, hips and shoulders, and then everything else should take care of itself. But continue to work on 
work deepening the core strength and integration because I know that's so important. I have had high level kayakers before. And when they've taken my classes, they've said it's helped tremendously. Um, and that is because it really helps to uh, balance out some of those imbalances that are created when you're doing one athletic endeavor. So you're going to need to keep those hips mobile, keep the front of the hips mobile, keep, and the glutes are probably pretty weak, I would imagine, because you're sitting on them. So maybe they're not weak, but they need to be worked more. So I would work in in, the, in all of those ways, hip mobility, shoulder mobility, and then core strength and integration. All my classes include that, Julie, so check those out if you haven't already. All right, one more question for today. Um, actually, I'll do two more. Okay, so this is Anna Equal. Tips to work out again after a low back surgery, a slipped disc. Are there any yoga poses to be avoided? Well, I cannot, as a physical therapist, I can't really tell you the answer to that without seeing you and knowing a little bit more, but I can talk generally, but don't take exactly what I'm saying verbatim because I don't know exactly what's going on. But I'm imagining if you had low back surgery, a slip disc, that's typically in the area of L4, L5, L5, S1. And when you've had, when you, if you've had surgery, it is often to take some of the disc out that might be, might, might've been compressed. So it's called a discectomy. If you've had that, there's probably no poses per se to avoid, except that I'm imagining there's some real um, strength that is needed. So when you have a slipped disc, unless it happens like from like an acute trauma, and even then it might have been set up this way, you really want to investigate why why that happened in the first place. So instead of thinking about what to avoid, I would think about what you need to do. And based on this very little information, I would say you probably need a lot, a lot of hip strengthening, hip strengthening and deep abdominal core strengthening as well in a functional way, right? So not just sit-ups and stuff like that, but how you hold your core strong, co-contracted as you're moving. See, even as you're like doing one-legged stance and how do you hold all that together? How do you fold forward? Well, I'd be really curious about that, but I would have a physical therapist look at how you do that because if you in fact had some lumbar disc issue, it might be because you were trying to move in your lumbar spine versus in your hips. So you want to have somebody look at that. So definitely work on strengthening. I'm, I can pretty much across the board say that it's going to be an area of a lot of weakness. So a lot of hip strength, hip mobility, um, that is not the same as flexibility, by the way. So we're not going for flexibility here. We're going for hip mobility. That's within the joint, being able to move there. So if I say hip hinge to reach something off the floor, you are doing that with a completely neutral spine. You're going to want to think rigidity in the spine. I'm not going to bend at all. So where are you going to bend? You have to bend in the hips. That's flexing at the hips. So you have to go and and understand like how to do a really good squat how to do a squat and then stand up again and and really work with somebody who understands the body because you can you can heal really well you can use this as a as a way of finding out early enough some some big weaknesses that if left you know un, unexamined could lead to much bigger things down the road so i hope that helps you but really really look at 
um, the things you need to be doing and focus on them. So that's going to be strength, strength, strength. Huh, this is a funny one. Annie's Yoga asked me, one of my students says her eyeballs feel like they're going to pop out in dolphin. What to do? So dolphin is an inversion, just like down dog is an inversion, just like handstand is an inversion. And I think that's a very wonderfully graphic uh, description of what some people can experience in inversions, which is more pressure inside their skull, more pressure inside their sinuses, and all the way up into the eyes and the eye sockets. Um, so I don't know the answer. Again, I would have to be closer to the person and ask them all the questions. But things that you want to ask them are, do they, t- do they have a lot of, do they have sinus um, congestion? Do they have any dizziness with movement, like up, putting their head down and then getting it up again? Is this a one-time thing or is this every single time they're in dolphin? And do they have any inner ear issues? Uh, do they have any visual issues? So those are the things that I would ask and any high blood pressure issues. If all of those are negative, like, no, I don't have any of that, then that's just, this is a person's perception and they just need to get used to having their head upside down. And that's another thing. People sometimes, um, it's just a different feeling, blood rushing to the brain or coming to the brain. And it, there can, it can elicit some anxiety, which in might be something she's perceiving in this popping of the eyeballs. So you have to tease out all the possibilities. There could be a real pressure buildup. And that's something that you're going to have to understand like why it's happening. And, and she might need to go see a doctor about it, but it could be just like, oh, I ha- she's always got congestion or sinuses and she, and she, or she has very narrow sinuses or things like that. I am upside down a lot. And I would say in the past decade or so of really working on inversions a lot, I think I can count on my hands, um, one hand. So maybe three times that I've had that feeling, not in my eyeballs, but in my the pressure in my sinuses, where being upside down um, was really like wow. It was. It's just. It just doesn't happen. Uh, some of it again is that I do have narrow sinuses, by the way, but I don't have a lot of mucus filled up in the sinuses. So you just have to think of all the possibilities in that area that could be contributing to that feeling of pressure. But it could also be just merely like she really doesn't like being upside down because it's just new and it feels weird. So I hope that helps you. I hope this helps all of you. Happy New Year. Let's work on moving, moving in all the ways, moving to feel better in our body, moving to feel better in our spirit, moving in a collaborative sense that we can be the movement for the change that's needed for our world in this next year and next decade. Happy, happy, happy 2020. As always, pulling for you all, hugs from me to you. Send me your questions at lara at movementbylara.com or on my Instagram page. Thank you so much.